passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. It's a, it's a great privilege to get to open God's Word with you this morning, and so that's what we're going to do, because we have a great deal, of, uh, great deal to cover. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. That's our text for this morning, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to see that 2 Samuel 5 is all about the establishment of David's kingdom. That's all this chapter is about. It's about the establishment of David's kingdom, and uh, it's five separate stories about how his kingdom is established, to the increase of his kingdom. And, and in God's great wisdom, uh, we're looking at that this morning on, on Palm Sunday, this enthronement of David on Palm Sunday, which Palm Sunday should have been, for all intents and purposes, this day of Jesus' own enthronement as he comes into the city of David. He comes into his capital city. He comes into Jerusalem. And this should be his coronation as the king over all of God's people. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to actually look at each of these stories of, of, um, of David's ascension to the throne, and then we're finally just going to take a few moments to consider um, Palm Sunday. And, and how do we tie 2 Samuel chapter 5 to the story of Palm Sunday? Let's go ahead and pray. As we jump into God's word, Father, it is um, a privilege uh, to open your word, and, and I just want to start by saying I'm, I'm in awe of your word, and, and I'm in awe of this passage and how it points our hearts to Jesus. God, we thank you for the gift that your word is, that you still speak to your church today. And as we consider this passage this morning, we ask that you would do that, Holy Spirit, that you would, um, you would be in at work in our hearts that you would turn our affections to you, and we ask that you would help us, as always, as we've been in this passage, to take our gaze from David, to look at the son of David, to look at King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, I mentioned that this, is, uh, this chapter is a collection of five short stories all about the ascension of David, the enthronement of David, the establishment of his reign. And we're going to go ahead and look at each of these. Uh, before we do so, it is important to recognize and point out um, that these aren't necessarily chronological. All right? They're not necessarily written in chronological order. Um, they take place at different parts in David's reign. The focus, in including them all together here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, is not necessarily because they happened before chapter 6. They're more focused on the fact that they all thematically have to do with the establishment of the kingdom of God through David and David experiencing at last the promises that God has given to him. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at our, our first story this morning in verses 1 through 5. Here we see this story about David, the king anointed. That's our focus here in this first story. The king is anointed. Let's go ahead, follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. 
2 Samuel chapter 4 closes with the murder of David's rival, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And now Israel has no other options, and so they come to David and ask him to be their king. And verses 1 through 3 give us three reasons why they want David to be their king. The first two are are pretty self-explanatory. They say, David, you are our blood relative. We'd love for you to be our king. The second one is, you know what, David, you've actually been in a leadership position over us in the past. When you were serving in the army of Saul, you were our leader. So we'd love for you to be our leader. The third one, however, I think is worth unpacking a little bit more because it gives us a clear picture of God's purposes for his chosen king. Notice again verse 2. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. One of the things we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel is this reminder that even though, whether it's Saul or David, even though they're the king over God's people, in all actuality, they are just a prince because God remains in charge. So notice that word prince, you shall be prince over Israel. But more than that, we see this focus here on the role of David as shepherd. In fact, the elders point to this promise that was given from God to David that one day David would be the shepherd over the people of Israel. This is the first time in the Bible that this phrase, this term of a shepherd is used to refer to the king over God's people. And yet it is a a crucial one because we will see throughout the Old Testament And throughout the New Testament, this idea of God's king being a shepherd, the leader of God's people being a shepherd, culminates in the person of Jesus himself. For example, in John chapter 10, when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. But we might be saying, what exactly does it mean that Jesus, or excuse me, what does it exactly mean that the king is a shepherd? And I think we we can look at other passages in the Bible to give us an understanding of what God has in mind when he says that the leader of his people will be a shepherd. In fact, a few centuries after this moment, Ezekiel chapter 34, God is speaking to the people of Israel and he actually gives this condemnation to the leaders of Israel. And and I think in this condemnation, we see what God intends for his shepherds, for his leaders over his people and how they are to act. Ezekiel chapter 34. Thus says the Lord, O shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them." So when we're trying to figure out what exactly does it mean for God's king to be a shepherd, we can look at Ezekiel chapter 34 and by the implication of God's condemnation here say, well, it should be the opposite of everything that we saw there. In God's kingdom, the king is meant to take care of God's people, not to use God's people for his own advancement. The king is meant to be a gift for the people of God, to ultimately lead them to God, to direct them to God. That's the true king, the true shepherd of Israel as God himself. 
And when the leaders of God's people are in line with the heart of God, that means they're giving of themselves, they're sacrificing their own wants, they're sacrificing their own desires, they're pursuing the lost, they're caring for the hurt and the vulnerable, they're wholly others-centered. And all of that is in mind here in God's pronouncement that one day David will be the shepherd over the people of Israel. If David wants to be a faithful king, if he wants to be the type of king that God intends for his people, then he will serve his people. He will not use them. And so the people of Israel, they anoint David as their king. And I just want to take a moment here in verses 4 and 5. We get a couple years, uh, a couple dates, and, and we, we learn a little bit about the, the process of how long it took for David to become the king. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that David became king in Jerusalem when he was 37. He became king in Hebron when he was 30. What we see from 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David is anointed king, 1 Samuel chapter 17 when he fights David, or when, in the story of David and Goliath, he was a teenager when he received the promises of God that he would one day rule over all Israel. And here we see in this moment that God fulfilling his promises takes almost two decades to bring about what he has promised to David. And from our perspective, that might sound like, might feel like God is incredibly slow. And yet God is not slow in keeping his promise to David through it all. God has never abandoned David. He's never left David. Even when David goes astray, God is doing something in David's life. In the midst of the waiting, in the midst of those moments where David feels like crying out, How long, O Lord? Those two decades of waiting, God is using to prepare David, to mold David, to be a faithful king. And I just want to say, if you find yourself in a season of waiting where you're like, how long, oh Lord, how, how long will this last, this season of waiting? Don't despair, because God is at work in your life as well, if you let him. God uses our obedience in the midst of waiting to shape us, to mold us increasingly into the image of his son. Just as God is at work in David, God is at work in you in the midst of your waiting. That's the first story. This picture of David, the anointed king. The second one is found in verses 6 through 10, and it tells us of David conquering Jerusalem, a section I'm just referring to as the king defends God's glory. That's what verses 6 and six through 10 are all about. God is at work through his king defending God's glory. Take a look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here because the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The presence of Jerusalem at this time in Israel's history, this, this location where this pagan people, this Canaanite 
people called the Jebusites lived was a reminder of Israel's failure. It was a reminder of what God had commanded them to do and yet what they were unable to do. They had entered into the promised land and God had commanded them to get rid of the people, including the Jebusites, and yet they were unable to do so. Centuries before David, we can look at the promise God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and God says, I'm going to one day give your descendants the land of the Jebusites. Take a look at Genesis chapter 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And yet generations before David, as before David enters into this moment of conquering Jerusalem, we see Israel is unable to defeat the Jebusites. Joshua tells us that the tribe of Judah tried and failed. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Judges chapter 1 actually tells us that the people of Benjamin tried to defeat the Jebusites, and they failed as well. Jerusalem is located in the center of Israel. And so for a pagan nation, a people who are idolatrous, who refuse to follow the one true God, for them to dwell right in the heart of God's promised kingdom, it's a sign of Israel's failure, and, and it's also this affront to the glory of God. And that's why right here we have this conquering of Jerusalem being the first story in 2 Samuel chapter 5 after David is enthroned as king. 2 Samuel is showing us David's heart. Here is a man who sees the presence of these idolaters in the midst of God's people, and he says, that is offensive to the glorious God that I serve. And so his first order of business as the king is to address this attack on the glory of God. Now, the people of Israel had tried many times to get the Jebusites out of the land, and that's why the Jebusites taunt the Israelites by saying, you know what, we're so secure that even if we were only defended by the blind and the lame, they could defend this city. But David grew up in Bethlehem, Bethlehem just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And apparently he was aware from those years of growing up near Jerusalem that there was a secret water shaft that even though it was treacherous, would give access to the city. And so he talks to his men and says, if anyone would want to do this, if anyone wants to attack Jerusalem, in fact, in 1 Chronicles, in the parallel passage, he says, if anyone wants to be my leader of my army, ascend this water shaft and attack Jerusalem. And his people did, and Jerusalem fell. And this moment, we see a transformation because Jerusalem once was a blemish on the glory of God, and now it is the center of God's glory. What's more than that? It's a forerunner of God's forever kingdom, the new Jerusalem, where God will reign forever and ever and dwell with his people without end. How was David successful 
when all else had failed? The answer is given to us in verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. See, God was always with David. God didn't remain with David forever because David was particularly impressive or perfect. Now, God never forsook David because God was committed to his promises, including those promises that stretched even back to Abraham when he said he would give this land to Abraham and his descendants and promises that go back even further, promises that ultimately culminate in the cross and the empty tomb. The king, David, is committed to the glory of God, which leads to this moment, this conquering of Jerusalem. Third story here in 2 Samuel chapter 5 tells us about David's reception among the nations. It's a just short, it's two verses, and yet I think it contains this crucial verse, probably the most important verse in all of First and Second Samuel in understanding David's heart. It says, in these verses, verses 11 and 12, we see the king and also God's global purposes for his king. It says this, And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. At some point during David's reign, Hiram, the the king of Tyre, reaches out to David. This legitimizes David's reign, not just among his people, but also among their neighbors, among the nations. The cedar trees that are mentioned here were world-renowned. They were used to construct the palaces of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and more. And so for the the fact that David has a palace that is constructed with these world-renowned cedar trees is a sign of the prosperity of David's realm. What we see here is actually just this glimpse of of something that's actually going to take place in the new creation. The blessings of the nations begin to flow into Israel. This is a foreshadowing of the day of the new Jerusalem. It's going to be the center of all the nations in Revelation 21 and 22. And yet more importantly, and this is the verse that is the most important, I think, in 1 and 2 Samuel. We see in verse 12, David understands his specific role in the kingdom of God. He understands the role of the king in the kingdom of God. Notice verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I find this verse absolutely astounding because here we see David's self-awareness. David realizes that he and his kingdom have not been exalted for his own gain, not for his own benefits. It's not exalted because of his own ability or his own proficiency. They have been exalted by God with a purpose. And that purpose is for the sake of God's people. 
I don't think I can, I can overstate the importance of this mindset for David. The failures and the disasters that we will see in David's reign later on in the book of 2 Samuel, they come ultimately from David forgetting his purpose as a king. So when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, or when he refuses to bring judgment upon his wicked sons, or when David takes a census later on during his reign, all of those things are because God, David is not concerned with God's people. He's instead concerned with how he can use God's people for himself. He's ultimately concerned with himself in those moments of failure. And yet, in all the moments, all the glorious times of David's reign, it's ultimately because he understands his role. That he has been given to the people of God for the sake of the people of God. And in this way, David is living out his purpose as a king. Isn't that what we saw earlier in this idea of, of shepherd? One who lays himself down, who, who is considering the, the good of others, not for their own gain, but instead for the good of the people of God. Here in this verse, where David understands his purpose in God's kingdom, it reveals what it means, I think, to be a man after God's own heart. This moment right here, maybe more than any other moment in David's life, he understands what it means to be after God's own heart. This verse shows us that David is the one whom all future kings in Israel will one day be compared to. It's because he gets it. And it's in this verse this verse where he understands his role as a king is for the good of others, for the sake of others that he ultimately points us to King Jesus. Because King Jesus did not seek his own exaltation. He left that to his father. Jesus instead used his authority and his power to remain faithful, to remain obedient to his heavenly father for the sake of God's people. So that people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue come into the family of God. And these are God's global purposes. That the kingdom of God, the people of God, would ultimately culminate in David's son. In a real way, verse 12 shows us that David understands God's purpose for being a king according to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We've looked at Deuteronomy 17 a number of times. This passage that talks about God's purpose for how his kings are to act. And so it's kind of ironic that if verse 12 shows us, hey, David understands the heart of God's purpose for kings, then we get to verses 13 through 16, and we see David disobeying God's purpose for kings. This is a, a story or maybe just a declaration of the king's family growing. Verse 13, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Iliada, and Eliphelet. That was hard. <laughs> Normally I practice those beforehand and I realized as I was looking at that I didn't practice. This passage, uh, we got we to gotta look at this in two ways. This passage is both positive and negative, 
All right, from a cultural perspective, it was very important. It was a cultural sign of power for a king to have a lot of sons. So positively, this is a sign of the increase of David's power. It's a, it's a declaration that David's power, David is getting greater and greater. And yet, at the same time, there is this underlying tension here because it mentions not just the increase of David's sons and daughters, but also the increase of David's concubines and wives. And so we have to find this tension. We see that David's habits that we looked at in 2 Samuel chapter 3, they're still there, and in fact, they've continued to get worse. Notice the narrator's disapproval. It's subtle, but it's there in verse 13. You would never mention concubines before wives, and yet that's how the narrator describes what's taking place here with David. David may be getting stronger and more powerful through the growth of his family, but it's simultaneously clear that the cracks at the foundation of his kingdom are still there, and if anything, they are getting bigger. So that's the fourth story. The fifth, the chapter ends with a final story, this this battle of, of, or I guess two battles between David and the Philistines in verses 17 through 25. Here we see the king delivers God's people. The king delivers God's people. Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. It's been about seven or eight years before, or since the Israelites were last defeated by the Philistines. First Samuel chapter 31 tells us that the last time the Israelites and the Philistines battled, that was when Saul and his army were destroyed at Gilboa. And for the last seven or eight years, the people of Israel have been living under the oppression of the Philistines. We actually see that the Philistines have been occupying large amounts of territory that was supposed to belong to Israel. The Philistines are apparently content with just occupying this area and, and letting David and Ishbosheth and their rival kingdoms fight with one another. And then David ascends to the throne. And after David ascends to the throne, the Philistines realize, okay, now there's a united Israel. Let's go ahead. Let's put him to death. They go on the offensive against this united Israel. The Philistines go ahead and and camp in the valley of Rephaim. We have a a map. Can we go ahead and throw that up here? Rephaim is about a mile and a half southwest of Jerusalem. And this is a strategic location because this area of Israel, just like Jerusalem, was the crossroads of Israel. It was the crossroads from north to south, and from east to west. And so if you could control this area, then you could effectively control all of Israel. And that's actually what the Philistines did all the way back a generation or two earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 13. They took control of this area of Israel, and they effectively controlled the entire nation. David, understandably, is not going to let this happen. And yet, before he does anything else, he first seeks the Lord. And this is a huge contrast 
if you were with us in 1 Samuel. Huge contrast between him and Saul. He first seeks the Lord. He knows that the Lord is the one who ultimately will deliver his people, not David. And so he asks God for guidance. God gives him guidance, tells him to go attack. He does so. This leads to this massive Israelite victory. And David doesn't take any credit for the victory. He actually names the place of the battle Baal Perazim, which means the Lord of breaking through. You might say, well, actually, isn't this word Baal, isn't that referring to you know, the gods of the Canaanites. And, and yes, but it also can just be used for the word master or lowercase lord. And in the context, it's clear that it's referring to the Lord God of Israel. Israel's victory here is so great that the Philistines actually flee and they leave behind their gods. All of their idols that they brought into battle that were supposed to help them be victorious over the Israelites, they actually leave them behind because they're fleeing for their lives. And there's a not so subtle statement here about idols and how impotent they are if we're paying attention. But more than that, what we see is actually the reversal of 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel is treating God and his ark, this this place where God's presence is is said to to dwell. They bring it into battle as a good luck charm, as effectively as an idol. And they're destroyed by the Philistines, and the ark is captured by the Philistines. And here we see the reversal of that that the idols of the Philistines are captured by David and the men of Israel. You know, in the, in the book of, um, the final book of the Lord of the Rings, I love the Lord of the Rings, um, at near the end of Return of the King, Sam, Samwise Gamgee, he's, he, he wakes up in Minas Tirith, or maybe it's not in Minas Tirith, maybe it's on the, on the Pelennor fields. That doesn't matter to you. I'm going to have to go read it this afternoon. Anyway, um, he, he wakes up and he's just in awe that some of the things that he assumed that were terrible that had taken place had not actually taken place. And he says this, and I, I think of this every Easter. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And I think that's an appropriate way of looking specifically at 2 Samuel chapter 5. And how it ties in the kingdom of God when God's faithful king is seated on the throne with what has taken place beforehand. Here we see the reversal of the disobedience of Saul, this man who refused to ask the Lord, to inquire of the Lord before he acted. He just acted out of his own authority. Here we see the reversal of 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the people of Israel were destroyed and the ark was captured. Everything sad is going to come untrue when God's king is seated on the throne. And yet that's not the only battle between David and the Philistines. Sometime later, the Philistines, they return to the valley of of Rephaim. That's what we see in verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So just as before, David is faced with this military threat, and yet the first thing he does is he seeks the Lord's guidance. 
He inquires of the Lord before he does anything else. And it's a good thing that David is consistent in doing that because God actually has different instructions for David in this moment than last time. And, and David listens, and God brings about another great victory. And, and in this moment, for the first time, we actually have a map. I don't know if it's, it might be hard to see on this map, but the people of Israel, for the first time, and generations actually kick the Philistines out of the land of Israel, drive them all the way to the coastlands. They're not just pushed to the margins. They're pushed all the way out of the land of Israel. This is a complete defeat of the Philistines. Israel, at long last, has been freed from the Philistine menace, and sad things are coming untrue. The, the brokenness of Saul's reign is passing because God's king delivers his people and God's people experience rest. You see, in each of these stories, we see the flourishing of David's kingdom. These stories tell us about David's enthronement, but that's just the beginning. We see what David is like throughout his reign. There is peace there is prosperity, there is flourishing because he understands, he grasps his role as the king to point the people to their true king, to God himself. And as I consider this chapter, this chapter is very much the golden age of David's reign. And when I read this chapter, my heart is actually filled with this this, this weird sense of nostalgia. And I say it's a weird sense of nostalgia because I've never experienced this. I wasn't there. It's not me looking back and saying, man, I, I wish for the good old days of David's reign. And yet, this chapter shows us what the kingdom of God should be like when God's king sits on the throne when he's shepherding God's people by serving them and laying his life down for them, when the Lord uses his king to defend his own glory, when the Lord's king delivers his people from their enemies. The startling thing is when we get to the New Testament and we see the true king, when we see Lord Jesus, when we get to Palm Sunday, this king who will usher in this kingdom of peace and prosperity and flourishing beyond our wildest comprehension, a kingdom that will never end, this king, rather than being welcomed into his capital city with worship, is instead rejected and despised by his people. In fact, that's the, that's the heart of the Palm Sunday narrative. In many ways, the Palm Sunday narrative is a triumphal entry, and yet it's not just a triumphal entry. It's also a story of rejection and indifference of God's king. Palm Sunday, the day that should be the enthronement of God's king, of, of Jesus, instead ends with the rejection 
of the true king. Jesus enters into his capital city. He enters into Jerusalem. He's riding a colt. He's journeying with a crowd of other pilgrims who have arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover. The Gospels tell us of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. They tell us of his true identity. And if we have ears to hear, if we have eyes to see, if we're paying attention, we'll see what the message of the Gospels is declaring about Jesus. And yet, it's not overt. If it was, the Romans would have taken notice. They would have understood Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a coronation parade, a declaration that he was the king, and they would have arrested him before he even got to Jerusalem. Jesus' trial before Pilate on Friday, certainly they would have brought up this claim that Jesus entered into Jerusalem claiming to be king. And yet there's silence. The Romans don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear what is happening. The crowd's response to Jesus as he's entering into Jerusalem is is certainly one that is fit for a king, and yet it wouldn't have been obvious to those who weren't looking for the king. they, They didn't understand who Jesus actually was. It wasn't just the Romans who missed the heart of Palm Sunday. Notice the crowds in Mark 11, 9, and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Passover was one of the largest holidays for the Jewish people. All the Jewish people would gather together, those who were able to, would gather together in Jerusalem from all over the world. And on their way into Jerusalem, they would sing a selection of psalms from the book of Psalms called the Hallel, these these songs that focus on praising God specifically. That word Hallel is actually where the word Hallelujah comes from. And these songs were sung during the Passover, and they would culminate with Psalm 119. This was a a psalm that was declaring the victory of God's chosen king over his enemies. Notice Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The connection to Palm Sunday becomes even clearer when we leave one of the words untranslated. It says this, We pray, Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And when the people of Israel encounter Jesus on the journey to Jerusalem, they're actually just crying out this typical Passover greeting. Not, in, not all that different than some of the songs that we sing. Just a song, oh, one day the Lord will return and we're longing for the day when his king will come and save us and make everything right. This is a typical Passover greeting. They're they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're on your way to Jerusalem. You're coming in the name of the Lord. Welcome as we all come together journeying to Jerusalem to praise our good God. The irony should be clear to us. 
Here are crowds of Jews, God's chosen people, crying out Hosanna. Literally, they're saying, Lord, save us. And in their midst is the man Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves. And he's entering into the city where he will not just save the Jewish people, but he will save people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. And the crowds have no idea the significance of what they're saying in this moment. What they thought was a typical Passover greeting is actually a statement of fact. Jesus is coming to save his people. Not from Roman oppression, but to deliver them from the oppression of sin and the devil himself. But that's not all. Notice how anticlimactic Mark is in his story of the, the triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday narrative. Here is Jesus. He's, he's entering into Jerusalem. It could be seen as his coronation parade, the moment where he should be enthroned as well. There's echoes here of 2 Samuel chapter 5 as he's entering into Jerusalem. The enthronement of King David is on our mind, and it should point us to the enthronement of David's son. But whereas 2 Samuel chapter 5 is climactic, it ends with this glorious victory of God's chosen king delivering his people from the enemies of God. How do the crowds respond when Jesus enters into Jerusalem? Not on the journey to Jerusalem. Once he gets into Jerusalem. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. And notice what happens. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here's Jesus. He's, he's entering into Jerusalem. He heads to the temple and there's nothing. There's nothing at the temple waiting for him. He looks around and then he head back, heads back to Bethany where he will spend the night. What's the significance of this moment? Let's go ahead and look again at Psalm 118. We pray, Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You catch the, the last part there. The last part of verse 26. The song ends by saying, we bless you from the house of the Lord. So Psalm 118 is a song of God's victory, of God's deliverance for his people through his chosen king. It's supposed to end in the temple. It's supposed to end in the house of God. And so on Palm Sunday, people are crying out about this deliverance that comes from God, through God's chosen king, from his enemies, and they're completely unaware that God's deliverance, his means of deliverance is right there in their midst. Jesus, the one who's going to deliver them from the greatest oppression that they could ever fathom. Jesus is in their midst. And all of this, according to the song that they are singing, Psalm 118, it's supposed to culminate in the temple with the enthronement of the adoration of God's king. This is it. 
This is the moment we have been waiting for. This is the moment where the king at last has come. This is the moment where all of Jerusalem should have been waiting in the temple to declare, save us, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you right here from the house of the Lord. This should be the high point. This should be the culmination of Jesus's life and ministry, the beginning of his kingdom that will last forever and ever without end. And what do we get instead? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus gets to the temple and there is no one waiting for him. Even the crowds that sang as he entered into Jerusalem, they've left him. There's no priests, no religious authorities, no choirs awaiting the king when he gets to the temple. No one's here when the king at last is supposed to be crowned. And the silence is deafening. Here on Palm Sunday, we see the indifference of Jerusalem to her king. The king is not enthroned. He's just utterly ignored. Palm Sunday, surprisingly, ends with the rejection of Jesus. Not necessarily overt. That will come later. Just indifference. Palm Sunday ends with the first steps to the cross already taken because the Messiah is already rejected. If 2 Samuel chapter 5 is a story of a king enthroned, Palm Sunday reminds us that the true king is only enthroned in his victory over sin and death at the cross and the empty tomb. You see how 2 Samuel 5 points us to Jesus? It points us to Palm Sunday here. Rather than a king who is enthroned with acclamation and, and adoration, we're instead given a king who will be crowned with thorns. The son of David will be enthroned but first, the cross. Why? Because Jesus, just as David, understood what it meant to be king. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The question, of course, as we draw ever nearer to Easter, we enter into this holy week we remember the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is how will we respond to the reign of King Jesus? Every Palm Sunday, I am reminded of the words that, um, according to legend, are written on the, the tomb or the headstone of, of King Arthur. It says, here lies King Arthur, the once and future king. Man, I love that phrase, the once and future king. It's a powerful one. Because according to Arthurian legend, 
Arthur once reigned and he would one day return and establish a kingdom of peace and prosperity beyond comprehension. And that myth of Arthur finds its roots in the truth of the gospel. Jesus, once the king rejected, will return to be our future and forever king. Jesus, the once and future king. The question, of course, is how will we respond to this king? Will we, like the majority of the crowds on Palm Sunday, meet Jesus with indifference? Will we be too concerned, too busy with our lives, other things, maybe important things, but not the most important thing. Other things have consumed our time and our attention and our hearts. Or will we be like the few disciples who look to Jesus and declare, here is God's chosen king, be enthroned, O God, over my life, reign over all my desires, all my wants, all my passions, affections, actions, my entire life. This Palm Sunday, how will you respond to the reign of Jesus, the true King? Let's pray. Jesus, I, I thank you that you reign. that you rule, that you are enthroned now forever in the heavenly places and one day you will return and establish your forever kingdom here. God, as we look toward that day, as we long for that day, help us to submit our lives our wills, our desires, our affections, all things to you because you alone are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.